Uh, obviously, sex is death from here on out. Hey, and welcome to the Meet Your Heroes podcast. My name's Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the podcast where we ignore the conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and get to know who your heroes really were. Yeah, round them out as people. There we go. Generally, you know the good things. That's why they're heroes. Yeah. Don't have to share those as much. That's why they're heroes. That's why they're heroes. But it turns out a lot of them did some pretty bad stuff as well. I don't know. Some creepy stuff. Are you saying people we consider heroes did some bad and creepy things? Yeah, almost like they were humans with too much power or a lot of free time. Yes, a lot of free time. Yeah, speaking of free time, we don't have any. No. God, man. And I saw earlier the other day, somebody was like, uh, what it is like right now, if you are one of the people who is lucky enough to be able to do your job from your house and also have kids and trying to work and be a parent at stuff that's not just teaching your kids, like that thing's never happened before. Right. That that is that's an anomaly in human history. Mm-hmm. Never before have we said like have a kid and don't just make them work in the factory next to you. Try to like teach them things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um I got cocky this week talking about how we spend our time with the uh Meet Your Heroes podcast timeline where I laid out each day of the week what part of the podcasting cycle we do. Then that all got real fucked, and we're way behind. Yeah, no. Right now, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, Wednesday morning, then we recorded this at something like ten fifty nine Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but pretty close. Feels yeah. like that. Yeah, behind schedule for sure. Yeah, uh, but here we are, eighteen episodes in, coming through for the millions of Meet Your Heroes fans <laughs> because you need us. Yes, yes. Um, do you feel like you've learned anything in the 18, over the 18 episodes? Like, have we gotten better at this? Or just run our mouth more? Uh, what have I learned? I have definitely learned how to make a podcast sound better. Our mm. first one sounded like shit, just terrible. Right. There's that saying, like, for creatives, if you don't look back and cringe, then you haven't grown. And it's pretty cringy. Yeah. And now I know how to make my vo- my voice sound like this. Ooh. Sexy Batman. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Creepy Batman. Uh, about the heroes, though, I would say some have genuinely shocked me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, definitely think there is something to be said for not being made into a hero. I feel like the whole hero construct now, I am more questioning it uh, than probably ever in my life. I agree. So, I mean, we've cover- covered some of the heavy hitters, right? Like, these are the folks who are very well known. Here's the good stuff. Here's the like terrible stuff. We've covered a few folks who are like, yeah, they weren't awful, but they did some like bizarre things. So yeah, it runs a gamut. There's there's really nothing good about being so well known. Yes. So as we've always said, please don't tell anyone else about this podcast that you already <laughs> know about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't want us to get uh, big headed. Exactly. Okay, so speaking of heavy hitters, today is one. Who is our heavy hitter hero today? Our heavy hitter today is Gandhi. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi himself. 
That's the one. In general, the heavy hitters are pretty difficult to do because there's so much known about their life and there's just a lot of editing that has to happen to to fit it all in in like 45 minutes. Sure. You don't want to be just like, hey, here's Audrey's astrology corner and like here's all the racist shit they did. You have to like bridge the gap, right? <laughs> Audrey's racist astrology corner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. But I just, I mentioned that because today is the like... Meet Your Heroes Gandhi episode, but it is not at all even close to comprehensive about his life. We're going to like get the high points, but I, I don't want folks to think that I went from just like, hey, he's this kid born in India and like, here's all the creepy weird stuff he did. Okay. Are you also implying that there's some worthwhile stuff in there too? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you get to be a... um as famous, world-renowned as Gandhi is without having accomplished a number of things for better or worse but like just not gonna not gonna get to it all okay fair enough it's an incomplete picture in terms of like the achievements of his life well then let's begin not even barely doing him justice tell us about mr gandhi all right so he was born uh his name was mohandas gandhi he was the fourth child of his father's fourth wife and he was born october 2nd 1869 which makes him a libra libra yes so let's go ahead and do the audrey's astrology corner for the devotees out there who are thirsting for this uh folks who are born on october 2nd are well known for their cleverness imagination and diplomacy while others prefer to stick to themselves they find the most excitement in a social setting They love applying their creativity and imagination into unique observations and witty remarks. While their friends greatly appreciate their clever humor, they may appreciate their diplomacy even more. So when a group has a disagreement or issue, they use their creativity to solve problems and bring order. And their undying curiosity places them in constant pursuit of knowledge. Well, if that doesn't describe both you and Gandhi perfectly, I don't <laughs> know go. what does. Right. This is not technically my birthday, but it's pretty close. Libras, we do some things. Uh, but back to Gandhi. As a child, he was described by his sister as, quote, restless as Mercury, either playing or roaming about. One of his favorite pastimes was twisting dogs' ears. So I tried to look that up. Like, yeah. is that a colloquialism? Like, does that mean yeah. something? Yeah. Can't find anything. Okay. Seems like it just means, like... He, like, was twisting street dog's ears just, just to be a mischievous little rat. Just fucking with dogs? Yeah. Strike one. <laughs> yes. Strike one. He was not particularly good at school. So this seems to be a theme among so many of our heroes that they uh, achieve all this greatness, but they, in their childhood, kind of just, like, dicked around at school. Yeah, kids, if you're good at school, fuck you. That's what <laughs> we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Um, but anyway, in, in school, he didn't do great. He wasn't terrible, just didn't really enjoy it. And he didn't play sports or games, but he really, really loved reading. So he was just this like deeply curious kid who was also apparently just painfully shy. Difficult to get him to even talk to people. His family's religious sentiments were described as quote unquote eclectic. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what that means. But it came up a few times. A little bit here, a little bit there. A little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, With the exception of his mother, who was just extremely pious. 
she practiced Vishnavism Hindu. I think that's how it's pronounced. A particular sect of Hinduism? A particular sect of Hinduism. Okay, never heard of that. Yeah, fun fact, neither of us have ever been Hindu. <laughs> neither. Not not even close. Uh, okay, so growing up, twisting dog's ears, painfully shy, gets married off at the age of 13, as was customary. Okay, okay. He is married to a 14-year-old girl. Uh, her name is Kasturba. Um, nickname shortened to Kasturba. And then Gandhi called her Ba. Uh, well, that is shorter. Yes. So it very obviously was an arranged marriage. And in preparation for this marriage ceremony, Gandhi ended up having to take a year off school. Nothing Don't know will, what goes into nothing it. Nothing will fuck up sixth grade, like having to get married. <laughs> yeah, having to get married, right? At the same time as your brother and cousin. It's a big joint family affair. Honestly, if you're going to do it, just make it a big one. Do it all at once. Knock it out. So very clearly, he ends up making up for it. He goes to school later. We'll talk about that. But he misses a year of school, gets married. They end up living in a small room in his family's home. I was, gonna, I was wondering, like, once you get married, if yeah. you're, like, 13 and you get married, you're not, like, out on your own. No, you can't support yourself, right? Yeah, can you imagine, like, some fucking 13-year-old just Xbox and Mountain doing it up and just trying to, like, make it in the real world? He continues to go to high school. It's 1885. He's 16, living his best life, gets his wife pregnant. Getting his wife pregnant is a complicated moment in his life because... Uh, around that same time, his father dies. Hmm. Uh, in fact, as his father was dying, Gandhi left his bedside to go have sex with his wife. Yeah, that's, and while that was happening, dad dies. So Yikes. what do you what do you imagine happens to the psyche of a lustful 16 year old who goes to lay with his wife and during that brief Three and a half minutes, his dad dies. <laughs> uh, obviously, sex is death from here on out. Yeah, it's not great. We'll see later all of the ways that fucks up a grown man. Mm. So his wife is pregnant. Unfortunately, she gives birth and the child only lives a few days. So 1885 was a real shit year for Gandhi. Yeah, talk about Perseveres, makes it through, graduates, decides to go to college. Goes to the cheapest college that he can get into, but within a year, can't afford it. Family is too poor, especially now that his father's dead. Tries to work a few menial jobs. Is not good at them. Turns out being painfully shy is... Uh, not uh, a great soft skill for yeah. these business world interviews. Right. He was like, you know what will help my shyness? Hmm. If I go to law school. I'm going to go to London and the law school is going to accept me. It's the turn of the century. That's exactly what happens. Wow, that's a bold choice. Yeah. He has a hard time convincing his mother and wife to let him go to London, unsurprisingly. Okay. Right? By then, he and Ba have a child. Wow. So his mother is widowed. And he's like, see ya, motherfuckers. I'm going to London to pursue my dreams. He believes his kid now to he go be... He lawyer. does, yes. On the condition, and he makes this promise to his mother, that in exchange for permission to go, abandon his family, he has to give up alcohol, women, and meat. Because he had, he'd gone through a little rebellious phase. But so he gives up sex, Well, alcohol, I mean, he's married, and well, so women, he's leaving. Yeah. Women, women meaning 
I don't talking know. to women. I mean, I my assumption would be that he just like makes his promise. He will be chaste. He will not drink alcohol and he will stop eating meat because he had gotten a little rebellious. Dad dies. Kid dies. Goes through some things. He is like godless for a few years. Drink some alcohol, smoking, eating meat. It's like a whole scandal. So he's like, hey, mom, I'm on the straight and narrow. All I have to do is get a goddamn break for three and a half years in London. Cool? Three and a half years is a long time. It's so long. It's absolutely so long. Anyway, he goes. Okay. It's mostly fine. He's still very, very, very shy. But he gets involved in the London Vegetarian Society. He becomes like a... Exec, not like an executive. He becomes CEO. Yeah, he's like on the board or okay. whatever. One right? of the leaders. Yeah. Um, and he starts to form some network, and this is sort of where the seeds are planted, where like eating becomes a moral issue. Before the vegetarianism in his life was inspired by his mother's religion. A lot of Hindu practice vegetarianism, and so it was sort of just like a lifestyle. Uh, in London, he starts to equate purity of eating choices with morality. Graduates law school, see you London, headed back to Bombay, arrives, and they're like, hey, while you were gone, your mom died. Wait, they didn't tell him before? No, mm-mm, no one told him. This wrecks him, totally destroys him. He is so emotionally distraught that despite just spending three and a half years training to become a lawyer, he cannot practice law. He sort of, like, regresses to this very shy and withdrawn person, and he just botches a whole bunch of cross-examinations. But he's, like, trying to be a lawyer. Yes. Oh, no. And so he's like, you know what? Maybe I'll just be, like, a a patent lawyer. I'm going to go, like, drop paperwork, legal documents. Bad at that, too. (laughs) You've met just, like, the boring desk job version of being a lawyer. Doesn't work out. Cousin calls him up. Cousin's living in South Africa. And at the time, it was actually called the um, Colony of Natal, which eventually becomes South Africa. But his cousin cousin calls him up and he's like, for 105 pounds, will you come work on this project with me? What do you Bron- think 105 pounds in today's money is? 105 pounds. Wait, let me do 105 pounds. Wait, let me do this uh, conversion. So 105 pounds in what's the year? 1893. 1893, roughly a million U.S. dollars today. Very close. 17,000. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. So he's like, cousin, come on down. Gandhi, sure. I'll do that. I'm going to leave my wife again. She's got two kids. No mom around. Uh, my father's dead. So bye. Enjoy India. I'm going to South Africa for Wait, a he bit. He just pieces out again. Yes. Right? Like... After mm-hmm. three and a half years of getting this law degree. Yes. Because basically it's like a job prospect that he can guarantee for a year. It's just like year-long contract in South Africa. He's going to be back to support his wife in a year is what he thinks. Arrives. Immediately confronted with this like violent racism in ways that he'd never experienced before. So he was living in um, colonial India as a child, right? Like British colonialism. <laughs> What's a... Yeah. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Under colonial rule. Under colonial rule. Right. As a child. So he went to school in London and now he's in this British colony again. So he thought of himself and he said this. I thought of myself as a Briton first and Indian second. So he was like very, very surprised by how discriminated against he was when he showed up. Within the first few weeks, he was kicked off a train, beat up and forced out of a courtroom for wearing a turban. He's still this shy sort of guy, but these things are starting to 
aggravate him. I mean, yeah, as as getting beat up and kicked out of a courtroom will do. Spins is here doing shit for his cousin. And right as he's about to leave, the natal government tries to push through this legislation that would make it illegal for Indian people to vote. So he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to stop that. Wait, specifically Indian people? Yes. In South Africa? Yes. It was like a very specific problem to be solving. This bill was basically, so it might not have just been Indians, but there was a whole Indian coalition against it. Basically made it an exclusive European right to vote. Um, he can't stop the bill from passing, but his campaign was successful at drawing attention to grievances and sort of just like hardship of the Indian experience in South Africa. As a result of this campaign, he helps found what's called the Natal Indian Congress in 1894. Because of this Congress that he founded and his increasing influence as an Indian rights activist, he decides to stay in South Africa. He does the courtesy of going back to India to get his wife, though. Okay, that's good. Right. That's, but it's just not like writing her a letter. Be like, hey, just uh, gonna hang out over here. Best of luck. Right. So fast forward a bit. He ends up spending 20 years in South Africa working on behalf of Indian rights. In the- Wait, just 20 years. We're just gonna, just 20 years. He, yeah. So we'll we'll touch on a couple of the things that he does. But basically, he's there for a couple decades. And he's most well known for all of these like big forward pushes that he made for Indian rights. Um, lesser known for his racism against other non-white groups of people in South Africa. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. He focused on this race, racial persecution of Indians, but ignored other non-white Africans. In some cases, his behavior is sort of just like of the time. He's like this willing participant in racial discrimination. Yeah, but so is racism against Indian people. Like, yes, that's the yes, thing. yes, yes, absolutely. And sometimes he just like explicitly says, hey, here are the racist things out loud that I'm thinking. Um, one of those things was a legal brief that he prepared for the Natal Assembly in 1895. And he cited the race history and European Orientalists' opinion that, quote, Anglo-Saxons and Indians are sprung from the same Aryan stock, or rather the Indo-European peoples, and argue that Indians should not be grouped with Africans. Wait, so so he is there as an Indian man claiming Mm -hmm. Aryan race Mm -hmm. to separate him from the black people on... On whose land they are standing, like, oh, as they argue this. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so many fantastic... This is, not, <laughs> this is already not the Gandhi that I was picturing we would be at. Mm-mm. Yeah, and we're just, like, easing our way into to some of the other offenses. There's this, so many fantastic articles and pieces written about Gandhi's... Racism. I don't want to say fantastic. Much more thoroughly researched and in-depth. But I want to read a bit from this writer whose name is um, Myhuk Sin. He wrote an article called Gandhi was a racist bigot who forced young girls to sleep in bed with him. And What's it about? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> bury the lead. Bury the lead. So here's what he said. Quote, to him, as he expressed quite plainly, black South Africans were barely human. He referred to them using a derogatory South African slur. He lamented that Indians were considered, quote, little better, if at all, than savages or the natives of Africa. 
And in 1903, he declared that the, quote, white race in South Africa should be the predominating race. And then after getting thrown in jail in 1908, he scoffed at the fact that Indians were classed with black, not white prisoners. Man, this, this is wild. Wild. It's wild because specifically, right, when we talk about whiteness, what we're talking about is, one, people who come in with guns for sure to start this whole, like, colonial system. Mm-hmm. But two, like, the categorization that arbitrarily includes or excludes people Right. And sometimes it, it, it like starts off with like melanin in their skin. But like it is then a political differentiation yes. through and through about who gets to be in this in group and who is in the out group. Yes. And it evolves and it shifts. And like it mm-hmm. is crazy. That That is crazy to me. Right. And it, it runs a continuum of violence from like physical violence to psychological violence all the way to generational violence to try and distinguish based on skin color is actually not just like this singular event that happens to people like having this archetype of superiority seeps into society in all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways yes so like i said he was in south africa for 21 years during that time uh there was a war in south africa called the boer war he was organizing others which is where we see the first seeds of nonviolent protest and civil disobedience planted he did not invent those uh, strategies. But he really brought attention to this like peaceful protest, civil disobedience as a tool to move policy forward, right, to fight injustice. Whereas before, we would have mostly just considered like violence the way to do it. Um, But he would regularly instruct like hundreds of people to disobey specific ordinances or laws that were trying to get passed at the time. He would uh, publicize being thrown in jail, like as a merit, right? So his celebrity goes from this organizer, activist, policy person to this martyr pretty quickly. At the same time, during this war, one of the tasks that Gandhi took on was um, working in ambulatory services. So going into the field where people have been shot and like on a stretcher, bringing them back to the medics. Like an ambulance. Got it. Like an ambulance. Part of that also includes just walking a lot from like battle to battle. They're not like taking stagecoaches all over the place. So he has a lot of time to think. And one of the things that he really wants to think about is his personal and spiritual growth. So how can he learn from what's happening around him and give service to humanity in greater ways. He decides the way to do that is by embracing poverty and chastity. Did didn't land on not being racist. So didn't yeah. land on that. Okay. But um, poverty and chastity. Yep. So without telling his wife, he takes a public vow of chastity. Surprise. Surprise. And this is where some of the more concerning parts of his legacy get really dialed up. Within a year of taking this vow, right, he's like 37, 38, he calls up a newspaper, well, his newspaper. At this point, he has a newspaper. And he's like, front page, print this. It is the duty of every thoughtful Indian not to marry. In the case he is helpless in regard to marriage, he should abstain from sexual intercourse with his wife. Again, not a lot of warning to the wife there that he already has. Yeah, not a lot. And also, that's a big reason a whole bunch of people get married. So this becomes a headline. I can see why. It's 
cloaked in this spiritual awakening, but really it's rooted in this contempt for sex that is bound up in both misogyny, and we'll talk about that in a second, and also all this sexual shame. Fucking my wife, my dad dies. Scampy good. Yeah. There are stories of that time, around that time, where Gandhi responded to the sexual harassment and assault of some female followers by cutting off their hair. Wait, what? To make sure that they don't invite any unwanted sexual attention. Got it. Yeah, okay. He really thought deeply that without practice, without like really focused practice, that men could not control their basic predatory impulses. And women can, so therefore... Women are responsible, but also completely at the mercy of these impulses. That's super fucking convenient if you're a guy. Yeah. Like, oh, this is somebody else's problem. Right. Right. Um, He despised his own sexual desires and, again, despised sex for any reason other than procreation. He believed that it was bad for health of the individual. And here's where it gets real dicey. That any sort of sexual freedom would lead Indians to failure as a people. Hmm. That can't inform good policy. He also believed that Indian women who were raped lost their value as human beings. Like verbatim quote, like lost their value. Oh, yikes. He argued that their fathers could be justified in killing them. Oh, fuck. Honor killings? Mm-hmm. For the sake of family and community honor. Yeah. Just bleh, right out loud said those sort of things. Wow, we are talking like Taliban and ISIS level of uh, misogyny here. Yes, and a lot of his supporters say things like, well, he was really focused on the empowerment of women to get an education and be part of policy. But what he really wanted was there to be an education system that was structured in a way that made women better homemakers. So he wanted more education for women, but it wasn't like Aristotle, algebra, Pythagorean theorem, it's like homemaking and homemaking. Yeah, yeah. let's be clear. Honor killings and honor cultures are never, in human history at least, pro-women. Mm-mm. That's Mm-mm. not a thing. Because no. there's a construct there that values the construct over people's lives. Big time. So, And he was all in. Uh-huh. Yeah, wrote a bunch of papers on it, said it out loud, preached it. Um, so let's position ourselves back in the timeline. 1915, he's 46, heads back to India. He's made his name for he's made a name for himself as a political leader. And around 1920, he starts to issue doctrines that sort of like specifically outline his political philosophies. He called this movement and his like philosophies the Satyagraha. I don't I don't know how to pronounce it, and so I'm very sorry. But that means appeal to, insistence on, or reliance on the truth. Originally, it started, the sort of tagline was like, God is truth. But over the course of the evolution of his philosophies, it became like, truth is God. Hmm. So it got like reinterpreted. Um, But the essence of this movement, of this philosophy, is, quote, soul force as a political means. So refusing to use brute force against the oppressor, seeking to eliminate antagonism between the oppressor and the oppressed, aiming to transform or purify the oppressor. It's not this like inaction, 
where you do nothing, but it's this very specific passive resistance of non-cooperation. Sounds pretty noble, right? Yeah, I mean, nonviolent resistance does tend to be the thing that people go to with Gandhi. It is, yeah. And it's a really, really good thing that he created a movement in which the image of the oppressor ultimately ends up purified because this motherfucker did some oppressing. By the mid-1930s, he starts these ashrams, which are monastic communities. Within these ashrams, he designed a whole bunch of rules, specific criteria for living there, things you had to do and couldn't do. One of these things that he designed were what he called, quote, experiments. And these experiments had the specific goal of testing people's sexual boundaries. Uh, what? Yep. So boys and girls were required to bathe and sleep together, but totally chastely. They were punished for having any sort of like sexual talk or innuendo. But men and women were segregated. And Gandhi's advice was that husbands should never be alone with their wives. And if they ever felt passion toward their wife, they should take a cold bath. Wow. Wait. Sort of like too hot to handle. Anybody watch that Netflix show? <laughs> Just oh, like yes. that. But for $100,000 less. Oh, man. Just, I have so many regrets about that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your mind, Watching just think Watching that of... show? Starting to watch that show? <laughs> Finishing it? Think in your mind of Gandhi's ashrams as like the too hot to handle village. <laughs> <laughs> and Gandhi's the Alexa. Yes. Uh, Lana. Lana. Yeah. Yes. Gandhi is Lana. Conveniently... The rules there, however, did not apply to him. Oh, wow. That's very that's very convenient, actually, if you're Gandhi, yeah. Uh, he had the sister of his secretary sleep and bathe with him. And when his followers were like, yo, dude, what the fuck? He basically was like, well, when she's bathing, I shut my eyes real tight. Hmm. And I can tell she uses soap because I can hear it. But I don't I don't really know what else goes on. I just keep my eyes closed. Real, real tight. Oh, it's a good system. Mm-hmm. Um, this obviously frustrates and creates some jealousy among some of his followers. At least if not, which is his wife. I would imagine. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's around. Okay. Yep. So she's still alive and caring for him. They're still married. At this point, they have four children. They're living together. They're building these ashrams. He's engaging in these experiments, but having these young girls come test his boundaries and um, also starting to engage in, like, the political activism we know him for. Hunger strikes, lots of resistance, the salt walks. He gets arrested a whole bunch of times. He actually gets arrested with his wife in 1944. She gets pneumonia, and the jail facilities were like, hey, does she want some penicillin? Because that would solve this problem. Yeah, that's yeah. So what we got. Gandhi's like, mm-mm, no. And she dies while they're in jail together. Really? And... Turns down the medicine. She dies of pneumonia. Yep. So if you can imagine the sort of behavior he was engaging in before she died, let's go ahead and zoom in on the behavior that happened after she died. Here's just a wild guess. I'm imagining it gets pretty reckless. It gets pretty reckless. Uh, One of the best articles that I read in doing research for this is a Guardian article called Women Suffer from Gandhi's Legacy. 
um, by a writer, Michael Connellan. And he said, quote, like all men who wage a doomed war with their own sexual desires, Gandhi's behavior around females would eventually become very, very odd. He took to sleeping with naked young women, including his own great niece, Manu, Ugh. in order to test his commitment to celibacy. Celibacy. The great niece part seems just like a step beyond. Mm-hmm. But she was his she was his favorite. Like she was there basically a child up until he Ugh. dies. Like when he dies, she's there with him. But all of this is in so many ways scrubbed from his legacy because uh, all of the writings Gandhi did about her and the way that he she helped him with his experiments and all of the writing she did that he had asked her to do about this, like how it was helping her spiritually. Yeah. His handlers were like, burn that shit real quick. I wonder why. After his wife dies, he forces many more women, and I would even probably say girls because they're, lots are teenagers. Um, in general, I try not to call other women girls, but in this case, I don't mean it like, hey, 25-year-old girl. I mean like 17-year-old girl. Forces him to sleep with him, uh, but the, some of these women were sleeping with him while forbidden to sleep with their husbands. Oh, oh, that's I hadn't thought about that complication. Mm -hmm. So he has these women in his bed engage in these like increasingly degrading experiments, uh, which seem to be strip teases and other non-contact sexual experiment mm. or activities. Unsurprisingly, one of the effects of these experiments were, quote, involuntary discharges that he wrote about with great disdain. Interesting. So it seems like his kink is definitely like uh, no touching. One author even says that he had a magical belief in the power of semen. Hmm. Gandhi said, one who conserves his vital fluid acquires unfailing power. Renewable source of energy right there. Mm-hmm. Yes. To further emphasize this point, let me read you some of his other writings. One who never has any lustful intention. So, intention. Who, by constant attendance upon God, has become proof against conscious or unconscious emissions. Who is capable of lying naked with naked women, however beautiful, without being in any manner whatsoever sexually excited who is making daily and steady progress toward God and whose every act is done in pursuance of that end and no other. So basically he was like, if there's no intention to be lustful, listen, we can do whatever we want. Can I just say, as somebody who grew up religious, not having the ability to test myself with naked people in bed as part of this process, mm -hmm. definitely short end of the stick. <laughs> definitely. I feel, like, I feel like this is certainly the way to see if people are serious or not. Yes. And frankly, I would take a lot more people uh, much more seriously if everybody was like, yeah, you know how I know I'm committed to genocity? Because I sleep next to beautiful naked women constantly. <laughs> right. And, that's, and it's working out great. Yes. So he is doing this and people all around him are like, yo, bro, stop. Just please, this is not good for the image. This is bad. And he was like, if you don't let Manu sleep with me, then I, I know that this must be like a calling from God. Like he must be trying to test me even more. So he goes to Manu at one point and he was like, tonight we might be killed by Muslims and we must put our purity to the ultimate test so that we know 
that we are offering the purest of sacrifices. So now is when we should start sleeping together naked. So then he takes this, this real con of an idea, and he starts talking to politicians about it. Oh, wait, he's going to like publicize this. Mm -hmm. Because, right, he was like, oh, if there's sexual freedom, India as a people were doomed. So he is like, I've been doing this for like 30 years and check out all these women I've slept in bed with naked and look at how powerful I am. So if we want our people to be this powerful, then this is of national importance. He said, Wait, does he like ask them to make laws like make sex illegal or something? What is this deal? Yeah. So he basically was like, you should start promoting this. And he publicized, what? quote, I hold that true service of the country demands this observance. If you're going to be a true Indian, you can never have sex. Right. I can see no problems with this plan for any people on any nation. Yes. Like, what? Yeah, it doesn't go over well in terms of policy. and But it did bring a whole bunch of attention to this idea. And he's famous to the point of infamy at this point, right? Yeah, I wonder why we don't see more make sex illegal platforms coming from politicians. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I'm going to make all the consequences of sex illegal, but not the boning. Yeah, no, the whole point, the whole point of so much of our politics in America right now is like, don't make sex illegal, just make it somebody else's problem right. constantly. <laughs> right, right. So people start hearing this call for celibacy as a way to ensure that people are liberated. Gandhi, this figurehead, fighting British imperial rule, the most powerful of all Indian people at the time, is equating sexual freedom with political oppression. Yeah, it's a hard sell. It actually does influence a whole bunch of policy. Not the don't have sex part, but the uh, shame and misogyny wrapped up in it. From that article, that Michael Connellan article, the um, Gandhi, like women suffered from Gandhi. Mm -hmm. He wrote that as a result of Gandhi's campaigns for celibacy and specifically against women's sexual empowerment, Gandhi cemented for another generation the attitude that women were simply creatures that could bring either pride or shame to men who owned them. To, to further, further go down in this article, he writes, in the words of the Indian writer Kushwat Singh, quote, nine-tenths of the violence and unhappiness in this country derives from sexual repression. Gandhi is not singularly to blame for India's deeply problematic attitudes to sex and female sexuality, but he fought and succeeded to ensure the country would never experience sexual freedom while his legend persevered. And, right, these attitudes still persist. Yeah. I mean, the news stories about violence against women in India have been, uh, yeah, incredibly incredibly recent into the 21st century, for sure. And it's, yeah, it's scary to think that the legacy starts with a lot of the same political movement that Gandhi is otherwise so famous for. Right, right. So those other things he's so famous for happening around this time also. At this point, it's like 1946, 47. He's engaged in one of his many public hunger strikes. Um, he used these as political leverage. A lot of that leverage was used to demand rights for Indians and to get colonial British government to bend or acquiesce. Uh, right? He's like threatening suicide. It doesn't look good for the governments that aren't willing to compromise or negotiate. And he has a platform like no one else. He is, while also being engaged in a number of negotiations to help free India from this British colonial rule. 
and then he's assassinated. That he is, wait that that is not what I was expecting at that point in the story. Yeah, I mean he is assassinated very shortly after some progress is made to create the states of India and Pakistan. For some reason, I, I mean, so I I understood I guess India and Pakistan creation were related to the end part of his life but i i just thought like decolonization of india was like further along when he died no and one of the things that he was really upset about was that even though there were these the the separation of the british rule in india at that time there was not sort of like a united India around it. There were still so many religious sects that were fighting and there was not a cohesive government. And he was very upset that did not happen as a result of all of his efforts. But he's still very famous, right? Now it's like 1947, in a courtyard with Manu, gets shot three times, dies 30 minutes later, Manu is there. But very quickly after that, there were orchestrated and like very careful campaigns to get rid of the the dirty parts of his legacy. Like I said, they stopped Manu from publishing any of her works. They basically were like, shut the fuck up. He's dead. You're gone. And so this is like one of the reasons that his legacy continues to be so untarnished, especially in the United States. Yeah, it takes big teams of people to keep your legacy intact is what I've learned, or, or at least uh, a conscious effort and usually a lot of work. Right, and this is... You know, mid-20th century, he dies. He's been working for 50 years in India. This is not something that people in America have any firsthand experience with, really. We'll start to see Martin Luther King Jr. gain notoriety around this time and use many of the same strategies that Gandhi used. But in America, it's pretty easy to say, like, oh, there was this, you know, peace-loving anti-colonial activist who starved himself to free his people, right? And then there's like the million quotes that are misattributed to him. He did not say, be the change you want to see in the world. He oh, did what? not say an eye for an eye makes a whole world blind. He did not. He said... Wait, did he not say, live, laugh, love? <laughs> he did not. What? That was not him. That was a bumper sticker manufacturer who took a paragraph of things he said about, you know, improving yourself and changing and doing so to change the world. And they were like, that won't fucking fit on a bumper sticker. Be the change you want to see in the world. Everybody knows it. Attributed to a random bumper sticker manufacturer, man. But anyway, so as a result of all of this, we have sort of, we as in the world, constructed this false idol just to justify or sort of like absolve him of these other behaviors. So like we want to be certain of his goodness. And to the extent that we are willing to ignore or forget, quote unquote, forget the damage that he caused, um, he is a plausible hero to many people. Yeah, I mean, the nonviolent resistance to get the... British out of your land and decolonize your land like great that legacy I think makes a ton of sense but when you throw in the actual person with all the misogyny and the racism uh, definitely not my hero not my hero either
So there's that. Another week. We did it. Where can people go if they want to be better than Gandhi? Oh, that's the bar. That's the threshold. <laughs> yeah. Um, follow us on social media to be better than Gandhi. It's at Your Heroes Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you're not already subscribed, joke's on you. You're missing out. Yeah. How are you listening to one of these and not immediately just signing up for all of them? I know, right? With that terrific sound quality that we brought to you day one. This does not happen accidentally. Right. Right. So sign up, subscribe, share it with your friends. Um, Leave us a review. We'll send you some stickers. Not a bumper sticker, but some nice stickers. We will actually... Listen, this is a real offer. We will actually mail you some stickers. You leave a review. We see it on Apple podcast reviews we yeah. find your username we post on instagram about you you're mm-hmm. like hey that's me and we mail you these stickers real life stickers in the mail have you ever turned just stuff you did on the internet into real things before for never. free never right. and if you leave a review on like stitcher or spotify you're gonna need to tell us because we don't, we don't check those as often i'm sure people do uh, i'm sure at some point somebody did on for us no, I'm sure oh, somebody at on Stitcher platforms. once looked at a Stitcher review. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, but that's not that's not, not the, us. Not the big bucks. Mm-mm. Nope. So rate review. We did not become millionaires with Stitcher reviews. That's one of the many ways we have not become millionaires. That's <laughs> true. There's so many. You can just add it to the list of every single other way we have never been millionaires. Do you think if we were millionaires, we would have brought you that shit sound quality from episodes one no, through ten? We would have started <laughs> off with this. We would have started off at level ten. We would have. Would have had soundproofing all over this closet. Oh man! Built a closet just for soundproofing. We would have had a special podcast closet where we just did our podcasts. I think I think rich people call those studios. We might have just had a studio sound booth. I mean, honestly, I think podcast closet sounds better, but to each his own. All right. Until next time. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.